you for uh, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives this year through First uh, Samuel and uh, God. Your ways are mysterious, and yet your character is faithful and true, and we can see that uh, throughout these chapters. So, Lord, will you open our hearts and our ears and our minds to hear from you this morning, to learn from you, Holy Spirit? Um, yeah, just just teach us. We want to be open. Uh, help us to open our open our hands instead of clenching them <laughs> when we want to hold on to um, what's easy for us. Lord, would you please uh, give us that freedom to trust you? Uh, be with our sister Annie this morning. Thank you so much for all that she's uh, put into this preparation. Uh, will you give her just undistracted, um, an undistracted mind and heart this morning? I know there's a lot swirling in her life. Will you just help her uh, for this hour to um, really focus on what you've given her and uh, just have that, that humble confidence that you're at work through her this morning. And um, yeah, we just give her to you and look forward expectantly to what you're going to teach us. So we love you. Thanks for being with us. And we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Do you like to put it in here? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. All right. Is that good? Let's see. Let me get a little higher. All right. I'm usually pretty loud anyway, but hopefully you can uh, hear me. Um, Welcome. It's so nice to see everybody from up here. I don't always get this vantage point, but um, all right. So every year as I put together a talk, there's some sort of, you know, small struggle or hiccup or something when I go to do it. But this year it was totally of my own making. Um, so I had been reading the passage, you know, for, for a while, for months. And, but then about a month beforehand, I sat down to really study it and dig into the commentaries and I'm looking through everything. And then I realized, oh, I'm talking in two weeks, <laughs> not a month. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. I think last year I talked in February. So I had that in my head. Anyway, it's just classic Annie, but, um, God is faithful and merciful and he provided, even though I don't know what's going on apparently. So, um, but today's chapter, we really get to see God protect David from Saul four different times in four different scenarios. Once he uses Jonathan, once he uses David's reflexes, once he uses McCall, and once he uses the power of the spirit directly. And we see God's hand of protection just really clearly on David. And then we get to hear David's response in poetry and prayer in Psalm 59. We also get to see Saul's continued decline. Um, we see him fight tooth and nail against God's anointed and um, instead of submitting to the Lord's plans. And unfortunately, that leaves him naked and powerless at the end of our chapter today. So we start our text today with Saul going on an openly aggressive hunt for David's life. He'd been hoping for a less obvious solution in last week, you know, that he was hoping the Philistines would kind of bump him off for him and he wouldn't have to deal with it. But that didn't work out. And so now his paranoia about David has reached this level that he's willing to issue an open kill order to his men. As Mary J. Evans says, it seems that Paul's obsessive hatred had caused him to lose all sense of reality. So often the way with such obsessions, he could not believe that others did not share his knowledge of the danger that he perceived David to be. Thankfully for David, he has a real true friend inside Saul's inner circle in Jonathan. And 
in Jonathan, he has a friend who not only has Saul's ear, but one who's pledged covenant friendship to David, who's honored and acknowledged the fact that David is the future leader of Israel. So with boldness and wisdom, Saul's own son intercedes on David's behalf. Jonathan first gives David the heads up. Hey, uh, he's out for your head, so go hide. Um, and then Jonathan pleads David's case with his father. Jonathan's a really smart and diplomatic peacemaker here. So let's look at the arguments that he uses to win Saul over. He makes three main arguments based on rational, theological, and moral principles. First, he rationally appeals to Saul's pride. He points out that David has actually done good for Saul's public image. In verse four, he says, what he has done has benefited you greatly. And he reminds him of Saul's own thoughts. Uh, you were pleased with David, remember? In verse five, he says, you saw it and rejoiced. And then secondly, he points out that this is all part of God's plan and that it was good for the whole kingdom. When he says in verse five, the Lord worked great salvation for Israel. Lastly, he makes a moral argument that don't be stupid. Don't break God's law. He says, why then would you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So God gives Jonathan success with Saul for at least a time. And we see in verse six that Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. So David's able to rejoin the court. He resumes his role as both army commander and musician to Saul. Um, and it seems like everything is going to be peachy. But we know from previous chapters that Saul is not above breaking an oath or a promise. And the relational peace doesn't last long for David. Once more, war broke out. David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. So Saul's jealousy is aroused again by David's military success. The next verse states that an evil, also translated harmful, spirit from the Lord came on Saul. And Kim King gave a great, gave great insights to this in her talk on chapter 16. But I just wanted to share a few more things that I learned um, as I was really wrestling with this phrase, an evil spirit from the Lord, what that means. So I found it helpful to look at God's character in all of scripture. Let's look at the big picture of who he is. And Romans 2, 2 through 4 talks about God's judgment and that it, God's judgment is part of his kindness meant to lead us to repentance. And 1 Timothy 2, 4, it says, God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God is always wanting us to come back to himself. And he sometimes, often, uses hard things in our life to do that. So perhaps this harmful spirit was God's judgment on Saul's rebellion against the Lord. It could have been uh, to call Saul back to himself, the maker of everything who rules with justice and power and love. Remember who I am. So we could see this spiritual battle in Saul as really just a call to repentance. Um, and to, this is to paraphrase. I, I heard Tim Keller say something like this in a sermon once, but it was basically that all the hard things that God allows in your life are for your good. And often they're to protect you from something worse. Um, in Saul's case, to protect him from a life without God. Um, Richard McDonald said this, 
in this fallen world, a judge may rule, may issue a ruling too swiftly or too harshly, but the judge of heaven is enormously patient. Saul was judged only after he demonstrated that his heart was unbendingly disobedient. Even in judgment, God extends mercy to believers and unbelievers, so they will repent. Sadly, though, Saul persisted in unrepentant unbelief and rebellion until death. Our God is not a vindictive judge who tempts those who disobey him. He's just and merciful, desiring that all should repent and live. I also want to address this thought that it could look like this evil spirit came on Saul and that's why he wanted to murder David, that he had no choice. He was compelled by the spirit. But I, this can't be true either because in James 1.14, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God doesn't make Saul want to murder David. Saul chooses to give in to sin. Saul doesn't return to the Lord as he could have. He allows this jealousy to reign and fester and grow in his life. And James 3.16 says, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. So I think it's good to pause here and consider where we see jealousy growing in our own hearts. Um, is a friend's brand new house, kitchen remodel, um, their slim figure, smooth skin, um, the way that their kids behave perfectly while yours are like out of control. Um, is it the way her husband treats her, the vacations they go on? Um, is it the fact that she has a husband and kids? Is it um, that she got this great promotion at work or her small business is thriving? I mean, we could go on and on, right? There's so many places that jealousy can take root through comparison. And we really just have to guard and rip out these little seedlings as they start to grow. I definitely struggle with comparison and envy. Um, I'm a seven on the Enneagram for, for those of you who are into that, um, you know, personality paradigm. So FOMO, the fear of missing out is like one of my driving fears. And um, I'm always trying to figure out how I can do all the things. I don't want to miss out on even like one potentially fun thing. And one thing that I realized is if I see pictures of friends doing fun things without me or, you know, their family doing some fun, amazing thing on social media, it really, it starts that little seed. Um, the envy and jealousy, it leads to self-pity. Then I start to think, I have no friends. Nobody loves me. My family, like my kids are growing up in the worst family ever. <laughs> I mean, it's bad. Like it just spirals into this really not pretty place. And so I realized I need to scale way back on my social media time um, just to protect my heart um, because I don't want to let those seeds get planted and grow. The other way and perhaps more helpful thing that I do is listen to people who speak truth into my life. Um, for example, my husband, when I moan about whatever I've seen on Instagram, um, helps point me to all that I have to be thankful for which is a ridiculously long list when I stop to write it out. And this helps me to grow gratitude instead of the envy. Um, those of you who know me know I'm super into gardening and plants. And um, like my husband bought me socks for Christmas that say there's no such thing as too many plants. I should have worn them for you today, but it's on the bottom. So I kind of would have been like this, but, um, but that is a true statement. hundred percent. No such thing. Um, so, but 
one of the reasons that my house plants do really well this time of year is because I check them daily. I'm going, I have my little routine. I go around, you know, how's their moisture level? Do they need water? Do they um, have any pests or infection? I I turn them so that, you know, to sunlight. So they, they grow straight. I miss them. Um, And I think that gratitude needs this kind of daily intentional care um, we need to sit and be grateful for both that day's provision. My kids got on the bus on time, um, you know, and also the long-term things, the ways that he's provided over the years, those big things that he gave me kids when we were struggling to have kids, things like that, that are marks of his faithfulness to us. Um, and I had a friend uh, actually tell me yesterday when I was talking about this, she was like, I have learned to try to make little altars you know, honoring the Lord in the way that he's provided. So maybe just, you know, a word on a sticky note that reminds you of something that he's been thankful for or a picture of something that helps to remind you. I am not good at this. This is something I'm learning to do. Um, but it makes sense to me that we need these practices of reminders to ourselves because gratitude doesn't come naturally. Um, uh, but I was thinking about it. I was like, I wonder if things would have been different for Saul if he had fought this jealousy and envy with gratitude. And um, if he had thought about tracing God's hand in his life and remembering, oh yeah, I was just a farmer um, and God raised me to this position. It was God who did it. God who put me in this place. Um, and I think when we do that, when we practice this type of gratitude, it reminds us we have someone to be thankful to and that it is his kingdom that we want to be part of building and not our own. And so it helps orient that, oh, right, there's somebody in charge, not me. And it reminds us also that God doesn't owe us anything. It, even these longings that we have in our heart that might be good and right and biblical, he He doesn't owe us. Um, he's given us all we need in himself. And I think that is just a helpful place for me to be when I, when I'm battling these desires, but we see Saul and his jealousy just gets totally disordered, grows into full fledged evil as he once again, throws a spear at David, tries to kill him with his own hand, but God spares David. He dodges the spear. He then runs to his own house where Saul's men follow him and are waiting outside in order to kill him. David's wife and also Saul's daughter, McCall, realizes the murderous intent that her father has and that it's a real threat. So she persuades David to flee through a window. The commentary said it could have been a window that was in a city wall so that he could get outside of the city. Either way, it was an unguarded option and David is successfully flees. Then McCall then covers for David and buys him time by setting up a dummy in his bed saying he's sick. And Saul, but when Saul finally tells his men, I don't care if he's sick, bring him here. I want to kill him. So her ruse is discovered. She then lies to her father to cover her tracks and is like, Oh, dad, don't you know? Like David, he's so scary. He threatened me. I had to let him escape. Um, but it's rather ironic here that God uses Saul's own family to protect David, not just once, but twice. Jonathan and McCall choosing to protect David over their father in this very patriarchal society is actually really pretty shocking. Saul would have expected that Jonathan and McCall would stand with him 
after all, was in their own interest in terms of power, financial success, security, um, that they stand with their father. Yet, isn't that how God often works? He works by turning the world's expectations on their heads. And this is just another example that nothing will thwart God's purposes. And he has the power to use whomever he wants to accomplish them. So it's in this scene of men threatening his life in his own home that the basis of Psalm 29 was written. Um, there are signs that more was added later to broaden the truth of God's protection to include all of God's people. For example, the phrases all nations that are used in, in verse 5 and 8 and to the ends of the earth that's used in verse 13. They signal that this version was perhaps written after David was already king. But when we read this psalm, we can easily see how these sentiments and emotions come from being pursued and threatened at your own home, the place that should be a place of safety and refuge, and is now under threat. In this psalm, we see David look to God alone to be his protection and deliverer. This psalm divides into two sections. So verse 1 through 10 and 11 to 17 are, are parallel. Um, both sections start with an appeal to God, then a description of his fro- foes, and then a refrain of praise. But the second half really builds on the first and ends with this really beautiful picture of what faith in hard times can look like. So I'm just going to walk through the psalm and, and make a few comments and, and then wrap it up at the end. But let's start at the beginning with David's first plea to God. So in Psalm 59 verses one and two, and I'm going to read from the NIV because I think their translation helps us see how personal this hunt for David's life is. It says, deliver me from my enemies, O God, be my fortress against those who are attacking me, deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood, my blood. David makes these pleas to God, even though he knows that God knows all things and he knows exactly where David is. He knows exactly this situation. He's allowed it to happen. But I love the freedom that this gives us as God's people to keep asking for deliverance in hard situations, to keep dialoguing with God about all that's hard in our lives. God wants to hear from us and we don't have to worry that we're annoying him with things he already knows or anything like that. He really wants to just hear our hearts and David feels free to do this. In verse three, David states that he's being pursued for no transgression or sin of mine. So I would just want to make it clear that David's not saying that he's sinless in life, um, that he, but that he's not guilty of the sin he's being accused of, which in this case is Saul's accusation that David is trying to usurp the kingdom and therefore has to be eliminated. Um, that's David's like, that is not true. That's not my intent. In verse five and the parallel in verses 11 through 13, we see David seek justice against his enemies in a way that um, kind of makes us squirm a little bit. I mean, I don't often pray that God will spare none or consume my enemies in wrath until they are no more. <laughs> um, but I, I think there are two things that are really helpful to remember here when we read these hard cries of justice. Um, and I'm relying heavily on two Tim Keller sermons that I listened to. One was called Praying Our Fears, and the other is Praying Our Anger. They are free online. I would highly recommend them to you. Um, but one of the helpful things that Tim Keller points out 
is that we, as modern people, we like to think that we're all in touch with our emotions. You know, we go to counseling, we cry, this is us. Um, but when we see these raw emotions in the Psalms, it makes us uncomfortable. We're not really that in touch with our emotions as we think. We see David pray his anger and hurt to God in just this really open, honest, unfiltered way. And I mean, we need to remember he is being hunted down like an animal in his own home. But he doesn't try and stuff or hide it and be like, oh, God, it's not that bad. Um, he brings it all to the Lord. And we have the freedom to do that, too. The amazing part to me is that he really continues. He prays through the heart and continues to look to God um, in the midst of it all until he can really remind himself, oh, right, this is who God really is. He is the God of steadfast love. The second thing that I think it's helpful to remember is that if there is an injustice, for example, an innocent man on the run for his life being hunted in his own home, um, wouldn't we want those people to be stopped? He describes his enemies as packs of wild dogs howling. So in cities at that time, the wild dogs would roam, and it was legit dangerous to go out at night because you could get caught by one of these wild packs. They're hungry. They'll eat whatever they want. They're acting on carnal instinct. Um, and if somebody like that was after you, wouldn't you want them to be punished? David sees God as the one who will bring him justice and pleads his case before him. And the amazing thing to me is that even though David has been anointed by Samuel, he is the future king. David wants to see God's name praised above his own. He's not caring about his kingdom, even his own comfort. He wants God's kingdom to be proclaimed. He asked for a slow demise of his enemies in verses 11 through 13, so that, and this so that is so important, so that they may know that the Lord rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. It's God's name. He wants God's name to be praised and his glory to be known to all the peoples. I haven't had somebody hunt me down to kill me, thankfully, <laughs> um, but I was trying to think of ways that I, I have been in a similar position to David and struggled, you know, experienced some injustice. So this this came to mind. Uh, I had an experience with a boss once that felt really unfair to me. There was a major reorganization at the corporation where I worked. Um, I came back from maternity leave and to this new supervisor, um, and she was new to the company and one of those people that demanded a lot, but didn't give a lot of help or direction. And so I was working really hard, like scrambling to kind of keep up with her demands, bringing work home. Um, and um, long story short, it came to the time of year when the, the year end re reviews were due, the rankings, which is also tied to your financial bonus. Um, and I found myself in the bottom category, which I'd never been in before. And I felt like it was just really unfair given all the work that I had put in. And I felt like I was being singled out for being a mom coming back from maternity leave. Um, and I, I realized, I just want to, you know, caveat this. I realized this, you know, idea of injustice pales in comparison to many that many experience, but I was really angry <laughs> and it, I was really upset and had a lot of these strong emotions. And I definitely wanted to see that woman go down. And it was not so God could be glorified, <laughs> let's just say. Um, and I, I know that a lot of you have been seriously mistreated by people in your life who should have treated you well. Parents, husbands, ex-husbands, siblings, children, 
So you can really identify with David in this psalm and wanting justice, wanting to, um, and needing to seek solace in the Lord alone. So where does David go with these dark and hard emotions that he has about the injustice that he's received? And verses 16 and 17 are just so beautiful and amazing. He says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. David keeps praying and turns to the Lord as his one true fortress. So what's a fortress? It's that place, you know, you've seen it in the movies. It's the big, thick walls with the gate that comes down and you run there. You literally run when the, you know, you live outside in the, in the villages, the raiding, the enemy raiders are coming and you're like, I got to get to the fortress. So you literally run, the gate comes down, you're safe, you're secure. Nothing can get through these walls. So this is the place that God is for us. And how can David say this in the midst when he's like physically under attack and his life is threatened? I think two things. He trusts God and he knows God. He fully trusts. He fully trusts that that any harm that God allows to come to him will ultimately be used for his good. And he knows God's love in a deep way. He knows that he's loved with a steadfast love that not even fear or even death can take away. He knows the love of 1 John 4.18, where it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And how much more can we be certain of this? We who know the love our Savior showed us on the cross. Like David, Jesus was pursued by those who wanted to kill him. But unlike David, he didn't run. He faced his persecutors with the silence of a lamb led to slaughter because he knew it was the only way for us to be free. He knew that he was the only one who could trade his life for ours. His death was the one that brought us freedom so that we can know that fullness of a relationship with the living God. Ephesians three seventeen through 19 says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure with all the fullness of God. So this is my prayer for each one of us today, that we may grasp how high and how wide and how deeply, just a little bit more, how deeply we're loved and that his perfect love will cast out our fears. We may not have the specific Davidic promise that David had that we will be you know, given leadership of a kingdom. But as Dale Ralph Davis says, we can be confident that God will keep us until whatever he has ordained for us to be or to do is accomplished. And Paul affirms this in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So run to that fortress of God. He's safe and secure. He will not let us go. In the last section of chapter 19, we see God protect David in a more direct and somewhat strange way, at least to me. Um, David's fled his home, thanks to McCall, and is now with Samuel. And it makes sense that David would go to Samuel since he was the one who anointed David, gave him the promise. But 
David also knows that Samuel serves the living God as he does. And I, I kind of wonder, I'm like, maybe he went to be encouraged and learn from an older, wiser brother, like how to be more of this man after God's own heart. But Samuel and David are at Naoth, which could just be a town in the region of Ramah. Um, but it could also translate it to mean dwellings. So it could have been this communal living place for the prophets. Either way, Saul finds out that David's there and he sends messengers to take David, presumably to kill him. But when the messengers arrived, the spirit of God came upon them and they prophesied and they're just totally incapacitated. They're unable to complete their tasks to get David. Not once or twice, but three times this happens to the messengers that Saul sends. So Saul finally takes up the task himself. I mean, really, does he think that he's going to fare any better? I don't know. He must because he sets out. But in the case of the messengers, it was once they arrived at Naoth in the company of the prophets, that's when they started prophesying. But God's influence on Saul starts even earlier. First, he's confused and has to ask directions in an area that he should have known. Um, And then he starts to prophesy on his way before he even reaches Naoth. He then strips off his clothes, lays there and prophesies for approximately 24 hours. (laughs) Apparently, the Hebrew word here used for prophesying is often used to describe a prophet giving the word of God, but apparently can also be described to use sort of a frenzied state. So it could be, you know, he was in some sort of fervor, loss of control or actually giving word from the Lord. But whatever is meant by, even though that's not super clear, whatever is meant by this word prophesying, what is super clear is that God himself is thwarting Saul's will and protecting David. As it says in Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God chose to directly intervene in this supernatural way, and it reveals his power and control over the situation. Also, just a caveat that naked doesn't necessarily mean that he was just totally nude. He could have had some undergarments on, but the commentaries agree that that the important thing is that Saul stripping off what would have been his royal kingly robes is actually a sign demonstrating that he will be stripped of the kingship. It's it's a, a, a visual that what God has said will come true. Um, the prophecy that he, he will remove the um, kingdom from Saul. And also this phrase, is Saul among the prophets that the people are saying, shows us the arc of Saul's reign. Where it was meant in wonder originally, the first time when, when Saul... Um, had been anointed and was prophesying. They're like, whoa, is Saul among the prophets? But now it's met with a scoffing tone of Saul among the prophets. Even the people can kind of see that Saul's reign is weakening. I just wondered, like, if you, I know that I've had these time in my life when God's made it clear that there's nothing that I can do about a situation um, to make something happen. I just have to rely on him, his timing, his plans, we have a choice. We can submit to his plans, even though they may not be what we would like or what we would choose. Um, or we can fight against his purposes and pursue our own goals, try to make it happen. But then we end up lying on the ground naked and stripped like Saul. So let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us faith like David's 
that you would help us see you as our fortress, see your steadfast love for us in all of life's circumstances. Lord, we ask for your protection, um, that you would protect us from giving into envy and jealousy and letting it rule in our life like Saul did. Give us hearts of gratitude that worship you and you alone, our creator and redeemer. Thanks in your name. Amen.